HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Appeal, helping you enjoy your fruits and vegetables at peak freshness and reduce food waste. Learn more at appeal.com. Good evening and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food systems and policy and how they impact all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting on Heritage Radio Network. In 2016, farmers overwhelmingly voted for Trump over Hillary Clinton. But life in rural America, and especially on the farm, has arguably not improved under a Trump administration. For example, shortly after the election, Trump started a trade war with China that significantly decreased farm incomes, especially for small and medium-sized farms. There has been a spate of climate change-induced extreme weather events that has devastated farm states, while the administration has doubled down on rolling back over a hundred different environmental regulations and ramped up fossil fuel development. Dairy farmers continue to go out of business at a record rate, and the gross mishandling of COVID-19 has resulted in substantial losses for many farmers. Just to give a, a couple of examples. So with November 3rd firmly behind us, I wanted to take a closer look at the election results to see how, and more importantly, why the majority of farmers cast their votes for one candidate over the other. What are those historical and present-day issues that have led farmers to be a more conservative voting bloc? And what can be done to bridge the urban-rural divide that seems to be getting more entrenched with each passing year? Joining me to answer all of these questions and more is journalist Chuck Abbott. Chuck is the editor of the Food and Environment Reporting Network's Ag Insider, and he has three decades of Washington experience covering U.S. food and agricultural policy at the national level. Chuck, welcome. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I appreciate being uh, having the invitation. Um, all right. So the election is over. I mean, for, I don't know, like 60% of the country. Um, and I want to take a look back and, and see what the margins actually netted out at in terms of Trump winning rural America and specifically farmers. He did so in 2016. And I know some of the state is still being parsed out, but how different did 2020 look? Um, 2020 uh, looked a lot like 2016. Um, 
with the possibility that Trump improved uh, his margins slightly. Um, this is according to uh, analysis done by the folks at uh, the Daily Yonder, who've been doing this sort of analysis of the presidential elections for the last three or four cycles. So they're they're you know they have lots of ways to make the comparisons. Um, it's you know it's basically two to one vote Republican versus Democrat in rural America. It's hard to get a a solid number on how farmers voted because farmers are a very small part of the population, you know, mm-hmm. one or two percent. Um, so it's hard to capture those people when you're doing like gigantic exit polls or even polling, you know, the standard sort of public opinion polling. Most of the polling that tried to get uh, farmer um, farmers' views before the election either were straw polls where they – you know, where some organization like a magazine um, said, if you're a farmer, tell us how you're going to vote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and those sort of, um, like I said, that's a straw poll. I mean, those sort of things always came in with, you know, like somewhere between 75 and 85% of respondents saying they were going to vote th- for Donald Trump. Um, a uh, one of the news organizations, DTN, which also owns the Progressive Farmer chain of magazines, those are farm magazines, um, did a poll of rural Americans, and this was one of those scientifically valid polls of rural Americans, and it came in with a very high percentage of people who were going to vote for the Republican candidate for president. And their number was a little bit lower than uh, some of these straw polls. It was a little bit lower than what some people might have said was Trump's margin four years ago. But, mm-hmm. you know, it was still an extraordinarily high percentage of people supporting the president. Yeah. I mean, he improved margins. That is Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they we're talking like improving margins by like one or two percentage points. Yeah. So, well, still, you know, for instance, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So still, so as we're going to get, we're going to get into why, and yeah. um, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around yeah. it. But well, one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons why is that there were fewer third-party candidates. Mm. That made that. You know, I mean, the Daily, as I said, the Daily Yonder crunched these numbers, and they came up with this fascinating fact that, in just terms of how many votes you got. Democrats and Republicans both did better <laughs> in 2020 yeah. in, 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 in the rural vote mm-hmm. because oh, you know, there oh, were fewer the third-party you know, candidates running. So, you know, and, and one of the interesting, interesting things is that the increase in rural vote for Biden you know, helped, helped Biden preserve the, the victories that he was getting in the cities and in the suburbs. Wow. Um, you know, by, by one analysis, it was the suburbs that were decisive this time in giving the, the election to Biden. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. four years ago, you know, the rural vote was, was the key. Because, right. you know, Hillary Clinton won the cities. And, you know, Trump and Clinton, you know, basically split the suburbs. So historically speaking, farmers have t- tended to, to vote more conservatively. If we look at farmers as a voting block, what are some of the major platform and policy issues that have led them to vote this way in the past? Well, okay, well, we're going to, for a moment, we can talk about, as you said, farmers are traditionally conservative. For the moment, we'll take like this big picture view. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, agriculture is a capital-intensive and financially illiquid enterprise. 
you could go back through history, and that's the way you know, anal- you know that's the way historians describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, as a result, because you know, and, and we say fisc- you know, capital intensive, because you you have to put money into you know acquiring property, whether it's what equity or purchasing it. You need the equipment. You need some sort. You know, almost every farming operation needs some type of motive power, whether it's tractor, you know, whether it's gasoline powered or or animal power. You know, you need a lot of stuff to be in farming. But you only you know, because you know it trends. In, if you're grain farming, you get you know one harvest a year in most cases. So that means you have one chance a year to make money. <laughs> As a result, farmers tend to be you know. Well, you can say, you know, prudence is a uh, is a virtue, and holding on to your money often is a good idea because, you know, you don't have a chance to make it very often, and for long, long periods of time, farming was a very low income operation, very, very, you know, very low income um, undertaking. In a lot of cases, people, you know, grew and ate a lot of what they needed, so they didn't need a lot of money. But still, it, you know, you didn't have a lot of cash floating around, so it made it. You know, you became, you know, you know, it became an imperative to hold on to money. So that makes okay. you a conservative. So when you're going to do what, uh, you know, why do, you know, what, what things attract farmers or rural, you know, rural people to particular parties, you know, things like, you know, like uh, talking about, you know, less regulation, low taxes, um, you know, finding some sort of um, outlet for farm products, anything that will increase farm income, uh, those sorts of things really, you know, really are attractive. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and that, you know, understa- understandably. Right. So, for example, in 2016, Trump's, you know, selling points in rural America basically were less regulation, um, tax cuts, regulatory relief, uh, I said regulatory relief twice, didn't I? And <laughs> yeah. support for corn ethanol, and you know that, that you know, and he, you know, I mean, those were all good. You know, those would all be good ideas to if you're a Republican in general. In 2016, you know, farm groups were exercised over the waters of the United States. Regulation proposed by the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know. In agricultural groups, back. yeah, in agricultural groups, you know, the, they always regard the agriculture department as their friend and the EPA as an adversary. Interesting. So, you know, having a candidate who talked about, you know, rolling back regulations and, and in particular WOTUS, as this clean water rule was known, I mean, that was attractive. So, why did you, farmers? Why did farmers hate WOTUS so much? Um. It was portrayed by their, by farm, you know, by the farm groups and by some of their allies, such as the home builders, um, as an encroachment on private property. Okay. Um, the uh, well, that's the short, <laughs> short yeah, and easy yeah. answer. I mean, the, the farm bureau said it would, you know, said it would r- end up with the government regulating dry ditches because water ran in them, you know, every so often. Now the, you know, the Obama administration said that this was an exaggeration of the effect of, of the WOTUS proposal mm-hmm. and that it would be no more you know, encompassing than you know, regulations that had been in place 
back in the Reagan Bush years. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, by the way, I think it is um, really fitting that you said regulatory relief twice because that seems to be the biggest theme of this administration deregulation (laughs) so i think you can't say it enough (laughs) talking about um you know what the past four years have looked like certainly for food and ag um and by the way speaking of the reagan administration i have this personal theory that everything bad we're experiencing in america today has can be traced directly back to policy decisions in the in the reagan administration specifically and like certainly in the eight, in the 80s rural america went through had a really tough time right we saw like what a right. quarter of a million farms were lost during this decade and um, well 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 yeah when we talk about farms being lost i mean one thing you have to recognize is that since the end of World War II, Mm -hmm. the number of farms in the United States has dropped precipitously. (laughs) Um, And that's due to mechanization, synthetic fertilizers, and pesticides, and hybrid crop, hybrid seeds. it, 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 It led to an incredible increase in productivity per person, larger, you know, with the result that, you know, farmers could individual farmers could uh, you know, operate larger pieces of land by themselves. So mm-hmm. essentially you didn't need as many people in the, out in the farmland. I mean, the, the number of farms in the United States peaked at you know, a little bit above 7 million during the Great Depression. And I, you know, the, the 2017 Census of Agriculture says there's 2.04 million farms now. But getting back to the 1980s, because you yeah, did have a point yeah. there. Which was the um, the there was a you know there was an agricultural recession in the mid '80s mm-hmm. that was you know truly um, wrenching. <laughs> I mean, movies were made about it. At one, yeah. at one point, there were three Hollywood movies circulating that sort of touched on the uh, the effects of the recession on on agriculture. So, I mean, I mean, I mean people who were People who were assistant secretaries in the Department of Agriculture were were known by name and reviled as the uh, culprits for foreclosures on farm loans. Wow, that tells you what it was like. So, you know, yeah, the nineteen eighties was indeed a hard. You know, they are the hardest times in probably living memory for almost anyone in agriculture. And to what extent did those? You know, what happened three to four decades ago? Can can what extent can that explain where we are today, if at all? Um, um, like the residual, well, even just like the residual anger or you know displacement um, from well, there, rural well, communities. Well, the, you know the nineteen eighty. Well, among other things, the nineteen eighties are the reference point for everything that's going on right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, because try to back up when I say everything that's going on right now. Since 2013, 2014, um, agricultural prices and farm income have been, and what we will say. Um, Reduced levels because they, they 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 reached records in the in twenty thirteen and twenty fourteen, and then declined in one year. Almost farm income was almost half of what it was at the peak. But you know, so when people so every so often you know, you'll see reports about rising rates, you know, rising numbers of farm bankruptcies, or things like incre- the increase in debt held by farmers. And the comparison everybody always makes is, is this as bad as, as the 1980s? 
And, and you know, the answer, yeah. somewhat reassuring or not, is no, it's not that bad. Um, well, that's so there's, good. there's always, you know, and, and you know, one thing that happened in the recession, of the, in the agriculture recession of the mid 80s, was that there was, you know, an immense rewriting of um, some, of the, some of the rules governing agriculture. I mean, the, the one of the ways of resolving the, the debt crisis, the, the huge debts that farmers faced was that, you know, in some cases, lenders were required to take a loss on some of the loans. <laughs> really? Yeah. And, um, you know, the, and one thing, well, one, one result, but not necessarily during, you know, I mean, one, one lingering effect, lingering pass along effect is that USDA now tends more to provide loan guarantees than to offer loan direct, you know, loans directly itself. Um, but some of that's, you know, that's, you, could, you could also say that maybe that may reflect the Reagan-era desire to reduce the role of government and let, free, you know, let private enterprise mm-hmm. have, a, you know, have a greater role in these sorts of things like financing agriculture. Okay. So, yeah. Anyway. So, oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so in, in fast forwarding, so we, we, we talked about what he kind of ran on in 2016, right. and then he won the election, Trump won the election, and mm-hmm. then he started a trade war. <laughs> like that happened yes. pretty quick, right? With, yes. with yeah. China. Right. Yeah. How, how, how did this start and, and what were the impacts um, that farmers felt because of it? Well, you know, it was, you know, the trade war, of course. Well, it started somewhat slowly. I mean, there were complaints about, you know, I think, clo- you know, dishwashers or clothes washers. And there was some, there was some, some escalation. But, you know, the, it, the it, but the trade war really took effect in mid-2018. And the effect was to um, reduce U.S. farm exports um, by, you know, I, don't know, I did the math months ago and I have to bring it back to mind, you know, somewhere around 7%, um, which is, you know, it's not happy times. Mm-hmm. And, you know, farm exports are 20% of, roughly 20% of production, which means, you know, that's 20% of farm income. So, mm-hmm. you know, 20 cents of every dollar comes from overseas trail, overseas sales. So, I was telling you about how in 2013, 2014, those were the peak years for farm income. Exports were $152 billion. Wow. In 20, in, and that's fiscal 2014. Mm-hmm. In fiscal 2019, they were $135.5 million, $135.5 billion, Okay. Which is nearly $20 billion less. Yeah. And that yeah. $135.5 billion in fiscal 19 was, um, you know, a about eight billion less than the year before, and we've and, and since then, exports have been roughly stagnant. Okay. Um, they're supposed to get better next year, but that's on the basis of there'll be a recovery from the global from the global pandemic, and that you know trade with China will improve, and trade with China has improved a little bit. Um, some USDA statistics say that. Sales to China of of agricultural exports are around seventeen billion dollars in fiscal twenty twenty, which you know ended September thirtieth. The year before, they were like ten billion. Okay. And of course, it's not just a simple linear increase in total exports because you know some of the some of the commodities that went to China 
were diverted from you know other customers. But still, you got to you know, which is why we end up with overall exports sort of whole, you know treading water. So, and that mostly affected commodity farmers, oh. right? Um, yes, I mean soybeans were the biggest biggest single product. Big, big, biggest single agricultural product exported to China around, you know, I'm trying to remember now, yeah, maybe $20 billion a year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this this really impacted farmers. I don't yes, know if right. any farmers, did they see it coming or was it just, was it kind of like, did they blindside? Well, it was a surprise because, you know, um, you know because, you know, we'd had years of China growing in prominence as an import customer. At the time the trade war started, it was the largest, uh, largest, you know, you know, largest market for U.S. agricultural exports. But it was also the, you know, in, in many instances, the largest importer in the world for anything. I mean, it was the leading importer of soybeans and, and you know, most prominently, soybeans and cotton. Yeah. So, so what yeah. were what what did the administration do to offset the effects of the of the tariffs? Well, and yeah. Of the <laughs> okay. Well, the um, they um, they used a depression era agency, which is part of the USDA, which was created to you know, in, you know improve you know, commodity you know, farm prices and farm income. It has an incredibly broad charter. This is an agency called the Commodity Credit Corporation. It's it's just almost on paper. Its officers are the leading you know, are, the, are the top officials of the uh, USDA. Okay. Um. And as I said, it has this incredibly broad, broad power of all the things it can do. Because almost anything can fit into the description of improve farm income yeah. or bolster commodity prices. The uh, Trump administration spent enormous amounts of money <laughs> through the CCC to support farm income. First, it created a, uh, a short-lived, a short-term program called the Market Facilitation Program. Only supposed to last one year. They sent, if I'm remembering right, $8.6 billion in uh, cash to farmers and ranchers. It was supposed to be a one-year program. Well, the trade war continued. The next year, they uh, came back and created, you know, did the market facilitation program one more time. In this case, it was you know, $14.5 billion in cash to farmers wow. and ranchers. And then we had the, the, the pandemic. <laughs> and you know, the administration created... Yet another short-term program called the, the Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, and it's had two iterations. And the, between the two of them, those have sent twenty billion dollars to farmers and ranchers. So that's so, a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, at one point, I was, you know, doing the math, and you know, it comes out above, you know, forty billion. And if you, you know, make a couple assumptions about Everything being spent, you could get up to fifty billion, but you have to say. I, I, but you know, you have to be aware that the uh, first iteration of the the, the coronavirus food assistance program spent only about two thirds of the money that was supposed to be available. Really? So, you know, so they spent ten billion when they thought they might be spending sixteen. <laughs> I mean, so much for, like, fiscal responsibility, the party of fiscal, like... That is the argument that uh, has been made, but (laughs) um, one of the things, one of the, 
well, you know, one of the constraints that lawmakers faced, because they're working, you know, as, you, as you said, you know, <clears throat> it's easy at this stage to say the Republicans always run on fiscal restraints, mm-hmm. balanced budgets, so on. And there was, you know, there was criticism on Capitol Hill, but the problem you face is that there truly was, you know, a, 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 a you know, a, a, I'm not say crisis, but you know, there was, you know, farm income was definitely taken a hit because of the trade war, mm-hmm. and these are, you won't believe it from the spending, but these are austere times as far as congressional budgeting goes. So there was no extra money sloshing around somewhere that Congress could get to and say, we're going to do this. So, yeah. you know, the, uh, the committees of jurisdiction, as we say, you know, just let the administration go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, and listen, COVID highlighted many major weaknesses in our food and ag system and brought these into the national spotlight. And, you know, for farmers, we saw... Um, so images of just so like whole fields being plowed under and dairy farmers who've had a horrible go of it, you know, for a very long time now, just dumping hundreds of gallons of milk and, 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 um, um, sorry, hogs being slaughtered because they couldn't be, you know, like processed in time. It was a mess, right? Yeah. In the spring, yeah, there were, yeah, there were huge disruptions because um, you know a, a large you know <clears throat> a large portion of agricultural production had gone to the restaurants and school you know restaurants and schools mm-hmm. and others you know other what they would call institutional settings <laughs> yeah and those almost dis- you know, those almost disappeared overnight yeah so they were so that is yeah. something where i can i mean yeah. needed action needed to be taken right yeah I mean, there, it, there was, yeah it was it was very easy to justify for the you know the government taking steps to mitigate the impact right and you know and you know I mean we'd have to say that you know there was you know the uh, Congress spent you know what was it three trillion dollars on uh, on cures relief so and more as you could say yeah. needed it, right. they think right. the the one thing that just jumped out on me I read um I read this in Civil Eats that um, in both 2019 and 2020, more than 40% of farm incomes came from federal assistance. Oh, well, like, th- that well seems- this year, yeah, this year it, it will be right at 40%, I think. It will be. And Last then- year it was somewhat less than that. Um, it's, it's been a rising share, mostly, be, well, mostly because the government was putting more money into agriculture. Right. Uh, but, you know, this... This year, because of the effects of the coronavirus in the in you know, winter and early spring, there were projections that income, you know, farmer income from crops and livestock would be the lowest you know total in a decade. So you know, there, there were reasons for action. <laughs> yeah. In terms of a a model, it seems like it's pretty clear there needs to be some sort of reform in happening. Yeah, well, yes, that's, you know, that is one of the things that's being discussed, that, you know, this is a huge, you know, that there's a huge amount of money that's being poured into the sector at the moment. And mm-hmm. as, I, as I was describing these these programs, MFP is the trade war payments were known, and CFAP is the uh, coronavirus payments were known. Those all expired. 
I shouldn't say they all expired, but you know, MFP is dead. It's gone. Not you know, they, they ran. They paid the last of the money in that program early this year. Um, CFAP won the first iteration. That you know, the sign up on that ended in uh, September, so that the money's been essentially paid out of that. Mm-hmm. The second iteration of CFAP, um, you know, sign up began in, in in September, and you know. Some of the spending could run is expected to run into the new year, but that's it. And then, yeah. then what you have remaining is the traditional farm supports, uh, you know, programs which are crop supports, you know, land stewardship programs, things like that. Ethanol. I want to talk about ethanol. It's a, okay. it's a super you know important, obviously, economic issue for commodity farmers. What? And it seems to have been going because, like, there seems to have been a lot of back and forth with this administration. Mm-hmm. What actions have been taken to support this industry, and what has, have the effects been to date? All right, um, here we go. I mean, ethanol was one of the answers, you know, to far, you know, overproduction in agriculture. Yeah, back in the, in the '70s and '80s, and then it sort of trickled along as a local project or a state level you know, um, initiative. And then, you know, in the in the 80s and 90s, it became, you know, there, at one point there was, a, you, know, a, you, know, there was you know, there was federal money sent into ethanol. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they, there, there, there is no direct federal subsidy of ethanol, ethanol, you know, hasn't been for a number of years. But what has happened is, you know, that back in the... Mid two thousands, the Congress passed a law which took effect, you know, which created the Renewable Fuel Standard, which guarantees biofuels like corn ethanol and bio and biodiesel, which is made from soybean oil and other 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 materials, guarantees you know, biofuels a share of the gasoline market. Um, so that's one way that the uh, you know, that the, the United States has, has supported use of biofuels. And part of this push was, you know, it was the idea of reducing reliance on imported oil and that, you know, biofuels would be, would lead the way to cleaner burning fuels and reduce air pollution. Um, so, okay, good intentions. So, and, the, and, and the, you know, the, the RFS set this, set a, a ladder of gradually increasing amounts of biofuels that were supposed to be mixed into the gasoline supply. It's it's reached the top of the level, top of the ladder. Did that a couple of years ago. Fifteen billion dollar, fifteen billion gallons a year of ethanol, and some modest amounts of biodiesel, a couple billion gallons a year, and what they call advanced biofuels, which are second-generation biofuels. They're, they're required to produce less air pollution and which are supposed to come from things like um, cellulosic ethanol, which is made out of woody woody plants and grasses. Anyway, so it's, it's, it's gone up to 15 billion, 15 billion gallons. But in the last two, three years, the ethanol industry has been um, upset because of increasing use by oil, oil refiners of um, hardship waivers. So, and these are called small refinery exemptions, 
which is you know, which were designed as part of RFS to give a break to small volume refiners who were unable to mix enough ethanol into their gasoline and who otherwise would have to spend you know punishingly large amounts of money to buy credits to bring themselves into compliance with the RFS. I mean, these credits are called RINs for renewable identification numbers. And they're, they're essentially a way of saying, okay, I didn't, I didn't use enough ethanol, but I got, you know, somebody else used more than they needed, so I bought some of their, some of their RINs, so I get credit for using ethanol. But, you know, under the uh, Trump administration, the number of these hardship waivers has increased dramatically, like three times. <laughs> the uh, ethanol industry claims that the, I shouldn't say claims, the ethanol industry says mm -hmm. the waivers have have reduced reduced ethanol usage by four billion gallons cumulatively over the last you know over the last you know four or five years. Of course, the oil industry says no such thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's that's one point. There's been a squabbling over the uh, the waivers. The um, you know the, the the biofuel groups and the, the and some of the farm groups want the EPA to stop issuing waivers. Right. <laughs> At right. the same time, the industry also has been asking for year round you know, for for approval of year round sales of E15, which is a you know. It's fifteen percent blend of, of ethanol into gasoline. The tr the traditional blend rate is ten percent. The idea with E fifteen, of course, is that you use you know fifty percent more ethanol in every gallon. <laughs> Great way to increase you know your share of the uh, the gasoline market. Mm -hmm. um, until May of last year, um, people were you know retailers were not allowed to sell E fifteen during the summer. The argument was it was uh, too volatile, likely to evaporate. And if it evaporated, it would cause ozone precursors, I think is the problem. So that sounds bad. That's not good. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't want that. So, they, uh, so it was a big deal to get the administration to agree to allow year-round sale of E15. And part of this was done through studies to prove that it wasn't, you know, that E15 wasn't as evaporative as feared. And part of it was just, you know, done through the argument of we decided that E10 was all right. So why, why, you know, why are you worried about E15? It's not that, you know, it's not that, you know, it's not much work. It's not much different. So there you are. Um, so those two things have been going on. Those two things have been going on. The, uh, the, the farm groups have been wanting to try to expand, have been trying to expand the uh, network of, you know, filling stations that sell higher grades of higher grades of biofuels. Um, there's a government, you know, there's a USDA program that you know, awards grants money to grant and loan money to um, you know, retailers to install the pumps and the tanks that you need for the higher grades of gasoline. All that stuff. Yeah, the biggest, you know, right. You know, one of the things that's bothering the ethanol uh, industry right now is that every year the EPA is required to announce the uh, you know the RFS targets for the coming year. Usually these are unveiled around you know mid-year. EPA takes com public comment and you know around November first issues the RFS 
for the coming year. That hasn't happened yet. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and that is you know the before the election the ethanol industry and some of the farm groups were saying it was time for EPA to finish the job. You know, you've you've acted on E15. Now it's time to you know, assure us of 15 billion gallons in the new year. And to do that, get rid of those waivers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, yeah and, and Andrew we- Andrew Wheeler, administrator at EPA, says, well, we've got one court case that might, or one lawsuit that might be he- heard by the Supreme Court on the issue of waivers. So I just can't make a ruling on waivers right now. And, you know, we can't really, you know, he's, and then we have to wait on RFS because the pandemic, you know, at one point caused a huge reduction in gasoline usage. Yeah. So, you know, the government needs more time to figure out what's the likely demand for gasoline going to be in the new year so we can set an appropriate, you know, and proportional, you know, target for biofuels. Were they just stalling, <laughs> waiting for the election? So Some people would say yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> there was, you know, that, like... This is among the reasons why before the election, the ethanol people were saying, finish the job. <laughs> yeah. Were they like, we don't want to make anyone mad. We want all of your votes. <laughs> yeah, well, right. Yeah, we want the oil. You know. and, and, and one thing that you have to take into account is that the, the farm groups often turn to President Trump as the referee in this dispute. And the dispute between the oil industry and the ethanol people, and trying to get EPA to to you know, to to make a definitive statement on some of these issues, and you know, and Trump, you know, in a, a couple of the times, in a couple of the times that he intervened, trying to come up with solutions that would give both each side something. <laughs> okay. So, you know, how did that pan out? Well, it, you know, it's it's it resolved the dispute for you know like six months at a time. Okay. And then you know they, uh, then, then then folks on either side would begin to believe that the folks on the other side were making trouble, and you know we would start arguing again about well it's time to set the RFS. Yeah. And the, this- you know, and the oil industry would say, well, we, the RFS doesn't work. Let's get rid of it. It should just be let the market decide. In laying out all of these issues, like, what do you, what do you think the upshot is? What do you, do you think that it was really just the, the huge amount of cash payments that, that the administration gave to um, farmers that really put them over the edge? Or do you think that this was just kind of always going to be the way that they voted? Um, it, yeah. I mean, yeah, there are, Lots of reasons to believe that you know, the you know the farm sector probably would have voted overwhelmingly for Trump anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's um, I mean, like four years ago, for instance, in Governing Magazine, Alan Greenblatt uh, wrote about how rural voters tend to be more conservative on family and social issues, more so than city dwellers and suburbanites. They have higher rates of property ownership. And they're more likely to be self-employed, which means they're less likely to turn to the government for solutions. As a result, the partisan split between voters is more pronounced along geographic lines than any other measure. Or um, there's this um, article in Quartz uh, written by uh, Dan Kopf, who uh, 
refers to demographer William Frey at the Brookings Institution, who says that the urban preference for Democrats comes down largely to views on religion and diversity. And then the cop writes, rural Americans tend to be more religious, anti-abortion, and pro-gun rights, and are less likely to believe that racism is a major problem in the United States. (laughs) The Republican Party platform is a better fit for them. That is true. (laughs) It's very true. The Republican Party uh, platform, as it stands today, is a it is a much better place for them. Yeah, well, you know, I I wrote down a few a few things because I did some research ahead of the program. You know, as I told you earlier, two point four two million farms in the United States, one point nine seven million of them have whites as their you know white producers. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I mean that's you know that's ninety six or ninety seven percent of, you know, farmers, farmers and ranchers in the United States are white. I mean, there's, as you say, 1.97 million of those farms. There's 35,000 black farms, (laughs) black-owned farms, and Hispanic or Latinx, 86,000 farms. This is based on the 2017 Census of Agriculture by USDA. Um, So, yeah, there's... Some of this is, you know, Racial. if you're a farmer, yeah. who you see <laughs> yeah. are people who look like you. Yeah. And, and you know, it, well, and, and and so you know you you, you know you, you don't think you know. anyway. I'll stop there. You see, <laughs> it, it, it's it's a it's a system dominated by white farmers, and you know it used to be a Heavily male, although the um, 2017 Census of Agriculture um, did a more extensive job in trying to identify producers. Because <laughs> um, in, you know, in sometimes in, try, in looking at producers, it asks just for one person. <laughs> you know, like you're filling out the form, who's the producer? Mm-hmm. And in 2017, they tried you know, looking at there are other people involved in production. So there were there were, they came up with more women, and um, fifty you know fifty six percent of producers of this you know in the United States are women, according to the twenty seventeen census. They have forty three percent of the land. <laughs> yeah, and as yeah, you can imagine, that's... you know the the farms operated by you know black or Hispanic or you know Asian or other people persons of color. You know, they're smaller. <laughs> they produce less, you know, have, have lower volumes of, you know, dollar sales than, you know, the, the white-owned farms. Of course, some of it's because the white-owned farms are so, there's so much more of them. Okay, we are going to take a break here, but we will be right back. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Appeal. Here at HRN, we care about reducing waste across our food system, from farms to home kitchens. We know that about half the produce we grow ends up in the trash. We all want to enjoy produce at peak freshness and reduce the amount that gets thrown away. That's where Appeal comes in. Appeal is a plant-based protective layer that helps produce last up to twice as long. It's edible, invisible, and imitates how peels naturally protect fruits and vegetables. 
Because here's the thing, less waste doesn't just mean we're throwing less food away, it also means we waste less water, energy, and other resources that go into growing produce. Appeal works with nature to reduce waste across the food system, from the farm to the kitchen. Appeal helps us conserve our precious resources to ensure we have fresh food to meet our growing need. Appeal, food gone good. Learn more at appeal.com. All right. Well, I want to, I've got a a couple more questions. Then I want to talk about like the urban rural divide. So when, when you look at like maps of the U S that show the election results by land versus population density, Mm -hmm. I mean, you just, it's such a stark comparison. You see so clearly that urban areas are, are very, heavily populated and very blue and rural areas are sparsely populated and very conservative, which is obviously what we've been talking about. And this divide only seems to be getting bigger and bigger with more and more people continuing to move to cities. I think one of the things this election also has brought to the forefront, and this is certainly, in my opinion, something that I'm really adamant about is, you know, the push for like electoral college reform. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also want to understand you know, because by the way, I live in New York City and my vote does not count equally as, <laughs> you know, anyone else's. So um, I want to understand, though, what the repercussions would be for rural America if every vote was, in fact, weighted equally if we went by the popular vote. To say nothing of reforming the two senators okay. per state rule. Well, <laughs> okay. well I mean, the, the, you know, the, the argument against that, that approach would be that, you know, the... You know the the presidential campaigns would be run. You know would be contested in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, Dallas, and Miami. And you know if you don't live within you know easy driving distance of those cities, you'll never see a presidential candidate. There's no reason for them to come and see you. In some ways, this is like Trump. You know when he went to you know memorably when he went to. Erie, Pennsylvania, trying to, to get get the Pennsylvania vote, and then the rally and said, then, you know. He's like, why am I, I was here? Winning. I wasn't going to come here. Yes. Yes, I know. And, and, that's, you know, so and that's the concern obnoxious. that people have. I mean, you know, just but do the. Does that matter? Who ca- Like, who cares if you campaign well, it, there? It, you know? Well, it does that's matter in that, you know, that people want, and, and you know, they're voters and, you know, they're, and citizen, you know, citizens of the United States. You know they want and they deserve to have attention. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as a comparison, I can make to you because you say you live in New York City. Mm-hmm. All right. I grew up in Illinois, big important states, and I worked for three or four years in Iowa. And you know, I got the you know, writing about the issues in Iowa. I was a major agricultural state, and you know, I got. You know, I, you know, within the news organization world, I got the experience of, yeah, that's nice what you're writing about, but you know, the the mayor of Chicago just had a news conference, and that's what we're going to that's going to that's going to lead what we're reporting today. Ah, uh, yes. You know, so that you know that is the, I mean that that's the argument about why you have to have some way to, if you're if it's going to be totally, totally popular vote, you have to find some way to assure that people who are not in the population centers you know, are not overlooked. <laughs> right, right. And then, yeah. well, then the question is, what does, that, what, what does that look like in terms of 
you know, actual representation and huh. also. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and one other thing, I have to, have to throw this in here because you talked about uh, uh, when, when one looks at the, the maps after the presidential election and states are red or blue, Mm-hmm. You know, and you know, and you see vast swaths of red across the central part of the country. You have to take into account that you know it's it's not either or. Right. It can be you know, you know, like in Michigan, four years ago, a, a, a relative handful of votes can make the difference between what color that state is on the in the map, and that really means that there's a big diversity of, <laughs> of viewpoint. It's not like it's not that everybody in Michigan believes this, and you know, and as, you know, this is somewhat of an example. The third house district in Nebraska, which is like the western half or more of Nebraska, you could you could say that's the most agricultural state and most agricultural district in the country because it has the largest number of farms. Okay, thirty three thousand two hundred ninety four of them in the in the 2017 census of agriculture. But there are 561,000 people in that congressional district. (laughs) And yes, only 54% of that district is considered to be rural. Hmm. The rest of the population, so you're right there, like close to half the people in that district, which like I said, you could argue the most agricultural district in the country. You know, they live in town. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, and, and you'll indulge me for the moment. The second most agricultural district, based by number of farms, mm-hmm. is the fourth district of Iowa, which is north the northwestern quadrant of Iowa. Okay. Easiest way to think of it. 33,007 farms. <laughs> and the district is 51, barely, you know, just a little bit over, you know, barely almost 51% rural. So, so even there, you have a lot of people yeah. who live in what the Census Bureau defines as rural you know, rural areas. <laughs> Not rural areas, urban areas. Oh, urban um, area, yeah. Yeah, urban okay. areas. So, you know, it's this is one of the troubles in trying to in, in talking about rural districts or farm states. There's a lot of diversity within you know, within, within yeah. the, the people that you're covering. Yeah, and that's a very that is not to be missed. I think that is an incredibly important point. And I, and listen, I am I am from Michigan actually, oh. and so I uh, acutely understand first of all how just a few votes can make such a big difference, and also like, you know, you're looking at yeah, we lost like Democrats lost Michigan by ten thousand votes in two thousand sixteen. Yeah. Um, that still means that almost fifty percent of the voters in Michigan voted for Clinton. So, right, yeah. point point well taken, absolutely. Um, and and yet this divide still still exists, right? Mm-hmm. If we want to think about how where do we find common ground, because it's only going to get, I fear, worse, and it needs to be addressed. In, you know. 30 years ago. <laughs> Let's start now, right? Where Where is there common ground? Are there any prominent, like, non-governmental programs aimed at doing this that are particularly successful that you've seen? And then Ooh. as another question, what is a policy fix to address this divide? Um, you know, on, on the first part of your question, I 
I would be hard pressed to find a or you know, to name an organization that's that's doing that sort of work, and that probably just means I haven't been paying attention. Well, I doubt that you um, you do know your you know this field. So you know, there, there's, there have been there have been a, you know efforts to to improve urban and rural understanding. Um, there have been grassroots level sorts of things, um, you know, like the farm, you know, farm bureaus have this, um, um, I, this, I'll say gimmick, but it's not a gimmick, but I need some way to describe it. <laughs> um, this technique of you know, the, a, 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 a county farm bureau, this, then my father was in the farm bureau in Illinois, in this county, you know, county farm bureau in Illinois, so he was part of this at one time. County farm bureau ends up being matched with an urban legislator. And, you know, they dutifully, you know, go to Chicago two or three times and talk about their issues with, you know, the state rep that they've been, it's their representative in this um, initiative. And, you know, they expect this state rep to come out and visit their part of the state and, you know, get immersed in what's, uh, you know, what we care about out here. Mm-hmm. There's, 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 there are, there are lots of, I shouldn't say a lot. Of, you know, but there, that's an example of these ongoing grassroots levels to try to improve understanding. Um, okay, now if you'll indulge me, and then one time yeah. when my dad was part of this visiting the state legislator in Chicago, this state senator dropped by for a few minutes. His name was Barack Obama. He seemed to be a oh guy that was going somewhere. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Um, <laughs> So, and, and, and here we go. And I'm the guy living in Washington, supposedly with the uh, entree to elected officials. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is, so, that is amazing. So, anyway, uh, to back to that, yeah, there, are these, there are ongoing efforts. There's probably foundations out there that are giving out uh, large sums of money to, to, to work on this area. Um, and, it's, and it is an issue that you know, deserves consideration because here we go, diving into the numbers again. Mm-hmm. Um, Mary Kay Thatcher, who for a long time was the lead lobbyist at the American Farm Bureau Federation and who, you know, would do this sort of work, um, has done the math and come out with this point of, if, you know, roughly 15% of the American population lives in rural areas. If you take 435 seats in the U.S. House, 15% is 70. So that means there are, you know, you would say 70 districts that would count as rural. And in a recent uh, recent speech, a recent presentation, she said eight of those have Democrats as their representatives. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, I mean, she's she's reliable <laughs> on this. <laughs> And, I can't trust. I can't trust anything these days. Oh, no. Well, I, I understand. I mean, it, yeah. There were um, lots of reasons to during the during the I mean, campaign to doubt uh, things that yes. people were saying. But you know, Mary Kay Thatcher is reliable. You know, yes, it, it has been in this part of the, the the you know the business for a while, and you know, and that you know, and that is a, an issue that it's a low does number. pose. I think it does pose number. questions for you know how Congress operates and how legislation and, 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 you know, and how food and farm policy is written. Because mm-hmm. if there are, you know, if, because you can think about right now, the House is controlled by Democrats, yet 
Most of the agricultural slash rural districts are represented by Republicans. You know, when you go to a meeting in the House Agriculture Committee, the Republicans are not going to have them. You know, they're going to have a minority of the votes. <laughs> yeah. You know, our, our, you know, this is like, you know, the, when we, we were talking a few minutes ago about how people living in rural areas need to have their views known. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they could arguably say that, you know, we're not getting a fair hearing here because not everybody in this committee is from a rural area. <laughs> right. But, and, or, and you can say that it doesn't just affect rural areas, you know, the, oh, the decisions right. made in those right. communities affect the entire country. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that is totally correct. And there's, you know. I'm like, let me at him, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know. As, <laughs> going to as, Washington. <laughs> as, you know, as, Ken, you know as, as Ken Cook from the Environmental Working Group, you know, opined to me one time, you know, the, 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 the farm groups. You know, you know, back when, you know, when the ag committee meets, the farm groups are the people standing right next to the committee members, and the folks who are advocating for other stuff. You know, they don't have the ear of the committee members. Mm-hmm. People in, in the past, people got on the ag committee because they were from agricultural districts. Right. That was their. That was the thing they cared about most. You know, three-fourths of the, the budget of the USDA is spent on public nutrition programs, yet many of the people on the committee in the past, you know, cared more about, you know, what was, you know, what was the loan rate going to be for corn in the, uh, the farm support systems. Yeah, then the 40, what, 50 million people on SNAP. Right, yeah, right. Um, okay, so, last, so, so last question, because I, I know it is a Sunday evening, and I, I um, know that we're over, but I just love talking, I could continue this conversation forever. But my last question is, in looking towards the future, right, which I'm pretty mm-hmm. excited about, Biden has been clear about addressing climate change, you know, that mm-hmm. being one of his top four kind right. of like, yes. platforms. Um, to what extent do you think this will include agriculture? And do you think this is like a natural starting point for people to help kind of like bridge that urban rural gap to help get farmers a little bit more excited about Biden? Because, I mean, farmers have had their, you know, their farms and livelihoods decimated because of climate, you know, climate change related disasters. Oh, okay. Um, a couple Couple of things to say about where you know, in the, sky. The, the path forward. Yeah, I mean one because I, you know, one is that it's remarkable. And it's a remarkable attribute of democracy how so many people from various points of view can find a mandate in the election results. <laughs> because you know I you know I have some you know some printouts of you know statements made by various groups after the uh, after the election and you know they you know for instance the farm the national farmers union which tends to be lean toward democrats talks about how they're looking forward to climate smart practices that the uh biden yeah. administration will bring in and i and probably read that that's probably part of informing my thinking yeah and <laughs> so. you know how biden is you know has a, is committed to revitalizing rural economies and enforcing the antitrust laws which means going in their viewpoint means going after the meat packers and the uh Right, the big seed a companies. Of, a lot of work you know, to do he's there. Gonna, you know, he's going to improve the Affordable Care Act, alleviate racial inequality in agriculture. 
expand rural broadband. Like, that sounds and, great. Oh, and, and, the, and the Farm Bureau, great. you know, looks at the uh, election results and says, you know, well, they're fake. You know, the priorities for, for agriculture are expanding trade and market access, which means doing something about the trade war. Yeah. You know, expanding rural broadband. Finding, you know, finding a solution to farm labor, which means resolving immigration law. Yeah. And then there's, oh, yeah, strengthen the farm bill. <laughs> and, and, you know, more what regulatory relief would be a good thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's and basically the, like written by administration people now, yeah, you know. And, yeah, and, the, yeah, and you got, you know, the, like the, you know, the American Farmlands Trust says, you know. The Biden victory is, a, you know, supports our view that we need more cover crops. Yeah, well, you know, environmental protections and you know, um, and, and you know, create a, uh, you know, and the renewable fuel people say, well, yeah, Joe Biden, he's been for ethanol for a long time, so yes. we're going to get a fair shake for once. Yeah. What uh, a mess! So, oh but you know, God. but I said all that, but you know, the <laughs> when you look at the tran- the website for the Biden campaign, the transition website, buildbackbetter.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and you look at the climate change part of you know he, you know Biden has re, has put his, put his priorities on four things and one of them is climate change and you read about climate change he he mentions agriculture. Yay! <laughs> so, you know, so and it's it's you know, and, and during the debates and his in his you know on his on the night he, you know that Saturday night he declared victory. I mean he talked about you know. Um, carbon sequestration or carbon capture is probably what he, what he said, mm-hmm. which is one of the arguing points of what agriculture can do as part of climate change mitigation. Um, one of my coll- one of my fellow ag journalists, Chris Clayton at DTN, uh, has re- you know, has he's written a book about <laughs> climate change and agriculture, and in the past week he remarked about how this is the same discussion we had a decade ago where as you know as you know where the obama administration was going to act on climate change and agriculture's role in it was going to be carbon sequestration and wow. that you yeah. know, and that initiative you know just got bogged down um horribly bogged down in the house and um, by the time the debate finished, as Chris Clayton said, you know, you could not ta- say the words climate change in a farm, you know, at a farm group meeting and expect, you know, the, you know and expect it to be, to be received politely. Um, well, that's depressing. Well, you know, it's, but, you know, some, there, there are a number of initiatives within the ag community Towards climate change, <laughs> so you know some of this may be it. You know, it takes it's the it takes time for ideas to percolate, and for people to think about what they might do, or to find or or to think you know, or to find ways and to see that this could benefit benefit them either through increased productivity or higher profits. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, do you think the farming community is coming around the idea that like climate change needs is a is a problem and needs to be addressed? Um, that's you know, 
That's TBD. difficult to say. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in the, uh, on Tuesday, um, a new organization is supposed to be announced in Washington. It would be called the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. And it's wow. It's supposed to be composed of um, a number of prominent organizations representing farmers, ranchers, forest land owners, the food sector, environmental advocates, and state governments. Um, and the Environmental Defense Fund is part of the uh, part of the four leaders of this group. And they say, you know, this group supposedly has more than 40 recommendations it will deliver to Congress and the administration on climate, you know, on climate, uh, cl- you know, climate actions. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're sort of playing it close to the vest in what they're going to propose. Otherwise, who would come? Who would come to the news conference? Yeah, yeah. Um, anything you'll be keeping your eye out on in particular over the next couple of weeks? Well, the uh, the thing that's getting the most attention right now, of course, is the the parlor game of who's going to be Secretary of Agriculture. Yeah. Um, yes. And, and you know the the minor with with a side show of who's going to be the House Agriculture Chairman. Mm-hmm. Any bets? Um, on you mean on either of those? Yeah. <laughs> it's easier to to handicap the House race, um, which is that probably you know if you go by the if the past is prologue, mm-hmm. David Scott from uh, the Atlanta area will become the first black chairman of the House Agriculture Committee. Wow. He is, um, he is second in seniority in the committee, Colin Peterson being first, and Colin mm-hmm. Peterson you know, was defeated for re-election. Mm-hmm. And Democrats tend to follow, um, tend to follow seniority in, making, in, in choosing committee chairs. So, well, that is exciting. Yeah. Um, and then for agriculture secretary, it's a much harder, uh, you know, harder, harder picture to, to turn into a, you know, recognizable uh, image. Because, you know, there's, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a number of people running in the past, you know, in the past two or three administrations, you know, it, it was really advantageous to be a member, a former member of Congress, or a former governor. But you know, you've had, you know, Dean. You know, you had Earl Butts, Dean of Agriculture at Purdue. You had in the Reagan administration. You had a college president. Um, you know, um, so you know, they, they brought in you know Ann Veneman. You know, she was. A, you know, I was going to say California Secretary of Agriculture, and I realized I haven't checked her biography, so I shouldn't say that. <laughs> um, but you know, they, they they occasionally bring in people from from the state level, so it's you know, it's it's hard to hand it's hard to pick that way, and then you have to bring into the bring into mind that presidents you know have made a number of promises to different constituencies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, on, on the Biden transition page, website, their first page about the transition, they say, we want, we want an administration that looks like America. So a commitment to, to diversity and, and Right, equality. which means, yeah. you, know, you know, means diversity in the cabinet. 
Yeah, right, that'd be nice. To, to I'd be really in, excited about that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but again, about keeping things in mind, you know, presidents first off have to choose, you know, the secretaries of state, treasury, defense, and mm-hmm. justice. Those are the big, you know, those are the big four. Yeah. <laughs> and arguably, just and arguably, state, defense, and treasury are perhaps the top three. So they, mm-hmm. they have to make those choices. And then, you know, agriculture is in the next round. And by that point, you know, if people, if different groups feel they've been slighted in the first round, they make increasing demands about how they have to be recognized in the second round. And the, the presidents also, you know, recognize that they've made commitments. You know, um, and they need to try to, you know, you know as, as, I, as I wrote once, they need to, to carry out those commitments by literally giving people a, a, a seat at the table. Yeah. <laughs> in, this, you know, in this case, the cabinet table. It's a pretty so, big table. So, you know, so people who might have, you know, seemed like the front runner, you know, their chances fade because... You know, other folks have gotten different assignments, have gotten other cabinet choices. Yeah. And some of it gets around to, you know, around to timing. Some presidents name agriculture secretaries fairly quickly. Um, Donald Trump, uh, this is one of these oddities, interviewed Sonny Perdue, you know, early on in the process of the uh, transition but did not name an agriculture secretary, Sonny Perdue, until the day before his inauguration. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, he could have waited. <laughs> yeah. No, it, no. It, was, you know, it was one of those, as I said, it's an oddity. Of, apparently they had, decided, you know, had settled on who they wanted, but they... Uh, they just didn't, yeah. You know. And he lasted. He's still there, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. a testament in this administration with, right. the, with the turnover. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah, there's this... Famous story of how um, when Trump was threatening to uh, pull out of uh, NAFTA that uh, Purdue went to the White House with a map <laughs> showing him which states would be affected. <clears throat> and so the president decided that renegotiating was better. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. But, you know, it's one of those, yeah, Purdue lasted. I mean, when Tom Vilsack was Secretary of Agriculture and it was – Nearing the end of his eight years as secretary, he was arguing that you know that Trump ought to be looking for somebody who'd been a governor, um, which you know Sonny Perdue was. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know Vilsack's argument for that was that um, as a governor, you hand you handle a lot of different issues. Yeah, you have to you know you have to prioritize. You have to be able to delegate. And he, and he said that those were those were things that cabinet members have to do, because you you know no matter how skilled you are, you can't do it by yourself. Um, I'm sure there's going to be lots more stories like that coming yeah. trickling out of yes. the administration, and I look forward to hearing them. Um, <laughs> all right, well, we are going to have to leave it there today. I want to thank you so much for coming on and all the time you gave me, Chuck. This was like. Really, really a fun conversations. Thank you.
I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors. Our show intern is Amber Chung. Our show engineer is Matt Patterson. And the music is by Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the HRN website or as a podcast wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.